Welcome everyone in our JKL community. I'm your host, Justin, AKA Just Tries, and we're always talking vulnerability, learning, and growth mindset. Go to Just Keep Learning for more content geared toward helping you achieve your own big dreams. Our mission is to help millions of people be lifelong learners and achieve their goals. So help us get the word out if you know anyone who could benefit from the show. Our guest today has been a lifelong advocate for social justice missions and has had a huge impact as a teacher, speaker, and leader. With 83 years building wisdom, he has a ton of experience to share with us. He's the author of 10 books and runs a writing page to a massive audience. We get into advice for anyone who would like to own their dreams of being a writer, but we also talk about figuring out your values, your identity, and seeking a career that helps you be fully alive no matter what that is. With an understanding of mental health adversity, as well as appreciation that we must seize the day, he is a tremendous role model for all the goal getters out there. Please welcome to episode 15 of Just Keep Learning, Parker Palmer. Let me ask you, if you were to come and speak to a college first year business class, who are you and sort of what do you do? Well, good to be on with you, Justin. I really appreciate your mission in life and uh, know this podcast is an important part of it. So if I were to talk to a business class, I think I'd do what I always like to do, which is to begin honestly, which is to say that my career path has been very wandering, unpredictable, and from some outside points of view, I guess, random. But today at age 82, I can look back 50, 55 years and see the continuity, see how everything belongs and how the pieces fit together which is one of the uh, virtues, I think, of, of age. Um, certainly didn't feel that way for me at the beginning. So the quick sketch is that I thought I was going to become a college or university professor. So I did a PhD at University of California, Berkeley in sociology. By the time I got that degree, it was 1969. I spent most of the 60s in Berkeley. And the cities were burning. And this country was involved in yet another manifestation of our very long-term, from the beginning, uh, racial reckoning, racial crisis. And so instead of accepting a professorship, I went to Washington, D.C. in 1969 and became a community organizer working on racism, trying to hedge against redlining and blockbusting and all of the other things that were keeping our society segregated. Uh, after five years of that, I took a sabbatical, what I thought was going to be a sabbatical, and ended up living in an intentional community, an adult living learning community called Pendle Hill, which had been established by the Quakers back in 1930. The fascinating thing about Quakers to me is that while very small in number, they have been involved historically in, in a disproportionate manner in some of the great social movements of our time. So the movement for peace, the movement for racial justice, the movement for women's liberation, for equity among LGBTQ plus folks. And as you can tell, by that time, I had gotten deeply engaged with so issues of social change, which had not been a big part of my younger years, my high school or even college years, but by now had come to the fore. And so instead of just a sabbatical, I ended up living 11 years in this Quaker community with other adult learners, uh, became the dean of studies there, and oversaw a curriculum which basically had two parts. One is explorations in the inner life, meditation, contemplation, the kind of inward sorting and sifting I think we all need to do uh, in order to keep coming back to true north in, in, in lives that often have complicated paths and often meet with obstacles. But the other half of that curriculum was about nonviolent social change. So over a decade, I was able to put the inner and the outer life together, inner journeying that actually manifested themselves in outward acts of service and nonviolent movements for justice. After 11 years of that life, a very intense and deep life living communally with 80 other people, I began writing. I had, I had actually begun writing during those 11 years, but writing came to the fore for me, writing, traveling, speaking. And so I, I worked independently from that point onward. So for about the last 40 years, um, I have not worked for an organization. 
I have worked as an independent writer, traveling teacher, and activist. And that's been a very interesting journey for me, you know, long before the, the world of independent workers became as large and as complex as it is today. It's been challenging in many ways, but it's been profoundly rewarding. And so that may give folks a little background on why I'm very glad to be with you today, Justin, around the kinds of questions that I know you're asking about finding our way in the world in work. I guess that's what I've been about for most of my life. Yeah, it's a really thorough summary, and I think it goes into that idea of independent work, as you put it, entrepreneurship, and something that people are really interested in, especially in today's day and age, as well as uh, all these areas of education that we could dive into, adult learners, and so many different things that I'm sure we will touch on. I'm curious, something that you mentioned right off the bat, a lot of your work has been in the world of... Uh, let's say, anti-discrimination, anti-racism, those kinds of things. One of the biggest challenges as a white male myself is being able to host these conversations and get more and more dialogue going in this area to affect change without feeling sort of awkward about it. For lack of a better question, though, if people are listening to this and feeling the same way about how to kind of be an activist while also living that privilege that exists, what advice would you give for people kind of wanting to affect change, but almost feeling not comfortable enough to do so? It's a great question. And of course, I've seen a shifting landscape on that question since the 60s. We're in a very different place today with regards to all that than we were back then. So I've had to negotiate a variety of climates or ecosystems around the very issue that you're raising. But I think today, well, I guess this is something I feel about all of life. The more fully we can come into the world as ourselves with a fullness of truth about ourselves, the more comfortable we're going to be taking on the hard stuff and engaging in what my friend Greg Ellison down at Emory University calls um, fearless dialogues. Uh, Greg is an African-American scholar and activist who has a very active program under that name, Fearless Dialogues, and a very fine book on that topic as well for which I wrote the foreword. And I've learned a lot, obviously, from my black companions on this journey, um, having also established a nonprofit organization about 25 years ago called the Center for Courage and Renewal, where we work with some of these issues. So I've had opportunity to learn from a lot of good people. What I need to do as a white, straight, privileged, male, well-educated human being is to show up with all of that and the limitations that it imposes. I have to show up with a keen awareness of those limitations. And I have to own up, as I think Ibram X. Kendi says, the great anti-racist writer, I have to own up, first of all, to my white privilege, which to me is a no-brainer. Um, I sometimes get pushback from white folks who, in, in this conversation, which I incidentally think is one of the most important conversations we can have, white people talking to white people about race, in the U.S. anyway. I get pushback from white conversation partners who say, well, what's this white privilege thing all about? I mean, I, I, have, an, I have an uncle or I have a cousin who didn't get the job he wanted or didn't get the house he wanted or in the neighborhood that he or she wanted to live in. White didn't help them there. I can say, well, <laughs> I don't know your uncle or your nephew's story. I'm sorry they didn't get what they wanted, but I can guarantee you that the reason they didn't get it has nothing to do with the fact that they're white, uh, period. Amen. Uh, day by day, white people live with privilege. And, and of course, Bad things happen to all kinds of people, uh, unhappy things, disappointing things. It's part of the deal when you're on this road called life. But be very careful about imagining that because such things happen to white people, somehow white privilege is not real. It seems to me something we need to talk about. But we need to talk about something even deeper. You know, Ibram X. Kendi, the writer I referred to a moment ago, says there's no such thing as a person without a racist bone in his or her body. That just doesn't exist. That's like unicorns. He says you're either a racist or an anti-racist. And I like the fact that he, he applies that to everyone. 
without reference to skin color, ethnicity, race. He applies it to everyone. But he says day by day, you have opportunities to speak and act in an anti-racist way, which in those moments, in those passages of your life, you're no longer being a racist. So anytime I can speak up in a group situation, for example, when a racial slur is used. I'm speaking or acting in an anti-racist way. And day by day, Kendi's notion about how to hold that paradox or that possibility uh, is, is a helpful reminder to me about how I want to be in the world. I have a habit, for example, just to take one quick example, because we often think of social change as big acts on, on, in headline-making ways. That's really not what it's about. All meaningful forms of social change are built upon a million, million, million small acts, and everyone we can take makes a difference. Part of what you have to do if you want to be an activist in this or any other field is to have faith in the small things. That, that as my friend Greg Ellison says, have faith in that which that you can accomplish within three feet or so of where you stand right now. That's part of his Fearless Dialogues program. So in groups where a racial slur or a homophobic slur is used, anything that violates another person's integrity, what I do is pretty simple. I will say to the person who spoke those words, you need to know that when you talk like that, you are impacting me negatively. You are hurting me. You are wounding me because you are talking about people who are near and dear to me. You're talking about friends. You're talking about family members. And you need to know that. Now, now notice that what I've done here with that statement, I have not talked about the speaker inflicting hurt on someone who's not in the room. I've taken it upon myself. That changes the dynamic. And when you say something like that and you own your own pain in hearing, whether it's from your mother or an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent or a, or a close friend, you own the fact that you find such speech offensive in a personally painful way not because of some abstract ideology or belief system, but because you're there, you're human, and you have compassionate, constructive, creative relationships with the kinds of people who have just been categorically dismissed uh, and, and thrust beyond the pale of human identity. So there, there are all kinds of ways to speak and, and act in ways that are anti-racist. One of the things that I need to own up to beyond the stuff I've already mentioned, and I'll just bring it, I'll bring this response to a close with this comment, is not only white privilege that I need to own up to, it's also that I have within me a, a form of white supremacy. And I'm deeply convinced that it's a cop-out for white people to limit the, the idea of white supremacy to people who wear hoods and burn crosses, or who speak egregiously, outrageously, immorally about whole categories of people uh, in the way that's happening way too often in our political rhetoric these days. Um, I, I've never worn a hood or burned a cross, and I've, I've never tried to limit the life chances of a person of color or of a, or of a different ethnicity than my own. But um, within myself, I have often been uncomfortable in the presence of a culture or the manifestations of a culture that I'm not familiar with. I don't know the music. I don't know the moves. I don't know the, the language. I, I don't know the pop stars that are popular with, well, with a lot of younger culture. I'm 82 after all. I've been uncomfortable with certain aspects of other people's culture in a way that didn't lead me to hate, but it, it led me to regard what they like and how they speak, how they behave as kind of bizarre, as, as not, quote, normal. And I don't think you have to think about that very long to realize that while that's not outright active damage-inflicting white supremacy, it plants the seeds of something larger and more toxic. Every time you say, that just seems bizarre to me, that seems strange to me, why can we not say, why can we not grow as individuals to the point of being able to say, if all I had 
we're white male middle class culture 24 7 for 80 or 85 years of life or whatever I'm given. If, all, if that was all I had, how bored I would be. Same old, same old, recycling it every day. Why can we not celebrate the richness, the color, the flair? creativity of community. You know, anyone who knows the least little thing about plant life and animal life on the face of the earth will know that the the virgin prairies before we busted them up contained a couple hundred varieties of plant life and at least that many creatures that lived within that complex ecosystem. And that those ecosystems were much more resilient, more creative, more generative of new life, more able to survive the droughts and the hailstorms and all the natural calamities that come along to wipe out what grows on the face of the earth. Well, it's the same way with human community. In farming now, you have monoculture. You, I, there are huge swatches of the United States where you either have corn or you have soybeans or some mix of the two. That's it. And that topsoil is thinning rapidly. You know, the very infrastructure, the natural infrastructure of our agricultural capacity is diminishing because of monoculture. It, it isn't resilient. It doesn't survive the great calamities. It gets wiped out for long periods of time before it can even begin to renew. The same is true of the human community. The analog to me seems very close, and we really ought to be able to celebrate that if we could just open our eyes, you know, not so much to visions of possibility, but to the reality of how things really are. One of the things that I jotted down that I think brings this all together is the leadership project. Uh, naming you top 30 most influential leaders in higher education. And the things that you are speaking to obviously have direct correlations to the educational system and the way in which we teach and learn. Uh, You've referenced being part of an adult learner community for 11 years, but clearly you've been an adult learner your entire life. When you think of these things or the the idea of being able to live fully, as you put it, and how we see education today, be it high school or college and university, what are some things that you would like to see change, I suppose? Well, that's a question that's near and, and dear to my heart. And one of the reasons I wanted to come on the podcast and talk with you, because I know it's close to you as well. The very first thing that comes to mind, Justin, is I I would like to see an educational system that honors the many forms in which human intelligence comes, the many forms of human intelligence that exist among us as a species. I think there are psychologists who've been able to actually name eight, nine, ten operational forms of human intelligence. I have it in my own family, and I've always been aware of this. I had two grandfathers who were blue-collar workers. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. My dad never got higher than high school, but my grandfathers never got higher than the fifth or sixth grade. Um, But they were skilled craftsmen. One was a machine tool operator. The other was a carpenter. And they had intelligence in their hands that was... Einsteinian, and it's brilliant. Uh, my carpenter grandfather, I've seen this with my own eye, eyes, um, was able to build a circular staircase inside a house without using a bevel, hand-cutting those complex compound angles. Anybody who says this was not a brilliant man is blowing smoke. But the intelligence was not highly verbal. It, it was not studied you know, his school was, was life, as they say, you know, the school of hard knocks and experience. But intelligences of this sort, artistic intelligence, relational intelligence, bodily intelligence, problem-solving intelligence, they, they aren't honored in our school system. They ought to be. We, we treat the cognitive capacity of human beings as the highest form of intelligence, and in many cases, the only one worth training. And certainly the only one that you should reward people for. But but that's strangling us. That's strangling us. And I think in some ways, the most hopeful thing that's happening in traditional higher education today is that it's getting harder and harder to justify the time and expense necessary to get an advanced degree. And so there's we're being forced to think of alternative ways of 
educating people. And, and that means ways of educating alternative forms of intelligence, among other things. You know, there's a lot of evidence that some rudimentary classroom work, along with an apprenticeship, an extended apprenticeship, is the very best way to learn lots of things. Um, and there are things going on in in traditional higher education, like the flipped classroom, uh, which are taking us back to the primacy of actually working with a problem or a project or a body of data, rather than just talking about it and repeating whatever the teacher says or puts on the board. And so that that form of, of renewal in higher education, I think, should be huge. And, and we should amplify it at every opportunity that we have. And this is partly based in very solid brain research. One of the quotes from neuro, uh, neurological science that interests me most is, is from the late Candace Pert, P-E-R-T, who was a very distinguished uh, brain biologist, brain neurologist. And um, she said, the human brain is located in the top inch and a half of the skull, the top inch and a half of the human body, but the human mind is located throughout the body. And, and we know this from neurological studies, that when you're doing complex tasks in a complex world, finding your way in life, the mind is lighting up in many, many places, sometimes in the hands and sometimes in other forms of bodily knowledge and sometimes in relational negotiations, problem-solving capacities, and sometimes in cognition. They're working together. They're, they're not separable pieces, one of which should be honored more than others. And then one more, I think, very important frontier of reform in education. We have to stop this competitive business of regarding education as individual achievement as measured over against other individuals, which is the source of so many bad things that go on in higher education, including the fear of failure, the fear of losing, not, not on some scale of how well you might do, but on, on a scale of how well you're doing in relation to other people, which is, which is not the way the world works. I mean, that's back to monoculture rather than the cooperative ecosystem of the virgin prairie. Um, and so we, we ought to acknowledge the fact that knowing itself is a communal enterprise. We, we don't have any knowledge that hasn't come from a complex communal process over many, many years. And until that time when, for example, the community of physicists around the globe and across time say, we have reached a consensus that this is tr the truth, this is the fact about such and such a phenomenon. And of course, that doesn't hold for long because Somebody comes along, makes a new observation, advances a new hypothesis, a new theory, and soon enough, in some cases, there's a new consensus around a new version of what the facts are or what the truth is. Work happens these days quite outside of the academy in, in communal processes. And now, now that, especially now that a lot of folks aren't showing up in the office, we, we have to find other than face-to-face -face ways of cultivating community. We have to find it online. I know I know people for whom, you know, Zoom has become or pot, or Squadcast or any of these other platforms have become uh, surprisingly effective at, at building bonds, working relationships between people and doing all the things that demonstrating that all of us working together are smarter than any of us working alone. So, so the, the question becomes, why are we not teaching undergraduate and graduate students how to work communally? Because to say it again, all of us working together are smarter than any of us working alone. Um, so the, I think those, those two um, items remain at the forefront of my change agenda in education. One is honoring multiple forms of intelligence or ways of knowing, and the other is working communally rather than competitively, because that both of those things are demanded by today's world. It's interesting because one of the things that I don't think it's correlated or what what have you, but it certainly seems to be on the rise at the same time that the other is on the rise. And that's the concept that, for one, we need more experiential learning, as you mentioned, uh, apprenticeships, getting active and out there actually practicing things to anchor our knowledge back to. At the same time, 
I'm noticing it gets increasingly difficult to get people to want to work together in groups, uh, especially at the teenage years. And so that's an interesting uh, challenge that we have to try and get people actually interested in building community and diversity and working together. And I think partially that's why you see a, a rise in social anxiety and these things that they, they don't want to or they don't feel comfortable, let's say, working in groups, yet that's exactly the discomfort we need to push into. Yeah, I'll just say one, if I could say one quick word about that. The mistake we often make, Justin, in education is we simply ask students to work in groups and they don't know how to do it because they've never been asked to do it before. They don't have the practice. They don't have the habits of the heart that would allow them to do it well. And so, of course, it becomes frustrating and people throw up their hands and say, okay, back to the old ways. Everybody sit down, shut up, and you know, solve this problem on your own. But what we need to do, instead of just tossing them into the deep end of the pool, is we need to, first of all, provide a rationale for that kind of education, which rarely happens before we toss them into the pool. And secondly, we need to pro provide tools that uh, demonstrate how this works how you can make it work, how you can make it work to your benefit. And then we have to prove to people who don't, who haven't been hearing this for generations, that knowing how to compete individually is, is not going to satisfy the demands of a lot of contemporary work situations. It's going to undermine what employers are often looking for. And it's going to lead to long-term life dissatisfaction. You Show me somebody who's been competing all of his or her life in the corporate world, and I'll, I'll show you somebody who at age 65 is feeling like, I wasted my life in a game that wasn't worth playing, no matter how many toys they now own. So well put. I don't even need to ask really what should we do because that was perfect. I didn't get a chance, obviously, to read all of your books, but moving forward, I certainly will. And I'm excited to take some deeper dives in them. But to know, as we are known, the primer on authentic education, is are these some of the things that somebody would find in that book? Yeah, that, that book was actually done in 1983, I think it was published. So it's one of my older books. I have 10 books. And in the late 90s, I did a book that has been widely used in education at every level called The Courage to Teach, exploring the inner landscape of a teacher's life. And so that's probably the one I would recommend uh, most for people who want to take this journey in book form. And then a, a later book uh, sometime in the 2000s called A Hidden Wholeness, The Journey Toward an Undivided Life, which is about bringing these things together in communal forms of exploration. People might also want to check out the website of the Center for Courage and Renewal, because my book, A Hidden Wholeness, is really sort of the operating code of what we call circles of trust that we do at the Center for Courage and Renewal. So a couple of references. So you kind of listed the the next few references that I had jotted down to, to look into. And one of the main things that you mentioned there was the idea of the divided life. If you were to summarize that, as tough as it may be to be able to summarize, this idea of undivided or divided life, I think is really powerful and could help a lot of people uh, struggling with identity, how to learn, all these sorts of things that we're discussing. What is the divided life? Yeah, of course, I'd be glad to. Um, and at bottom, I, I'm not, I don't think it's probably that complicated, but a divided life is one where a person systematically, maybe unconsciously, but sometimes consciously, hides away the inner truth that they hold about themselves and their world, their identity and integrity and who they are in the world, hides that away and be, speaks and acts on the outside in a way that contradicts the truth they hold on the inside. That's a divided life. Um, and it, it results in a lot of personal pathology. I mean, think of how many millions of people, if they're honest, would say, I feel unseen, I feel unheard, I feel unappreciated. And that's not always, but sometimes because we tuck all of that away. We're, we're almost taught to tuck it away by certain kinds of, quote, folk wisdom, which turns out not to be wise at all, like play your cards close to your vest, right? Don't wear your heart on your sleeve. I say don't play your cards close to your vest. Wear your heart on your sleeve. If you value your heart, wear it where the world can see it. I, I really believe that. I understand the risks that come with that. I've experienced some of the downsides of those risks. 
But I've also experienced the profound satisfaction of taking a journey toward an undivided life where I can show up as myself and not only live to tell the tale, but find myself thriving more because I'm not hiding out. I think, you know, it's a pretty simple concept. The, the example I always like to use of the undivided life is, is the example of almost any great person who has come to symbolize a great social movement. I sometimes call the decision to live divided no more the Rosa Parks decision, because for many people in the U.S. and I think elsewhere around the world, Rosa Parks represents a person who came to a point in her life when she refused to yield her seat on that bus, Montgomery, Alabama, in what, 55, I think, um, and and in certain ways sparked or they built upon that act to create the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. She represents a person who came to a point in her life where she said, I'm just no longer going to pretend on the outside that I'm okay with the racist system that surrounds me, by which I'm supposed to act day by day, to which I'm supposed to conform day by day. I'm not okay with that, um, because I know myself on the inside to be a full and worthy human being. And I am now, from this day forward, going to speak and act in a way that reflects that inner knowing. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying you won't be punished for it, but I've, I've studied a lot of people who've sparked movements like Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela in South Africa. The list goes on. And one thing I think I now know from those great lives is that they, they came to a point where they, how can I say it, refigured or recalculated the calculus around punishment. And what they came to goes like this. If I take a risk, if I act in a way that reflects my own in integrity, yeah, I'm likely to be punished more or less severely by the society that wants to keep me in my place. But no punishment anyone can lay upon me could possibly be greater than the punishment I lay upon myself by conspiring in my own diminishment. I'll say that again, because to me, those are really important words. No punishment anyone can lay on me could possibly be greater than the punishment I lay upon myself by conspiring in my own diminishment. Yeah, the world around wants to diminish us especially at those points where we slam into all of the things that people of color, LGBTQ plus folk, women around the world are slamming into all the time. But to conspire in your own diminishment is to double down on what the world is, the dehumanization that the world is trying to work on you. And part of the journey in life is to get to a point where you just say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. And you begin to show up in the world more and more as yourself. I'll just add this in because, of course, at 82, I look at a lot of things through the lens of age. And I'm much more aware of my own mortality these days than I was at 72 or 62 or 42 or 22. Of course I am. I'd be an idiot not to be. I can't imagine a sadder way to die than with the knowledge that I never really turned up in this world as my true self, that I was always hiding it out, that I refused ever to take the risk of bringing forward my truth, my sense of identity and integrity into the world. How could one die peacefully that way, feeling I've wasted all these years on the face of the earth? So I think whatever age you are, there's there's a virtue, there's a value in remembering that you're going to die and asking yourself, what? how does that help me look through different eyes at speaking and acting in ways that have integrity for me right now while I have the chance? I think that that can be a transformative moment in life around choosing to live the divided life, choosing to live divided no more. Being aware of our own mortality, I often am told, and I guess I know that I uh, have been as aware as anyone of their own mortality throughout my entire life to the point of probably unhealthy at a young age. But the long and short of it is I grew up living in a funeral home and I saw a lot of things at a very young age myself, probably nine or 10 years old, really going to see another person my age who had passed and making a promise to them that I would never take another day for granted. And so that has allowed me to really live, I think, what yourself brings up in your work to use some pop culture uh, references recently, like Ryan Holiday just wrote a book called Courage is Calling. You know, there's a lot of people quoting things from that. And Brene Brown did her Netflix special about courage and vulnerability. It seems like we all agree that it should exist. But I do know by speaking to individuals 
and especially ones that are looking at college or university or the workplace. It seems like it's fairly easy if you work with someone for a couple hours, let's call it, to figure out what they love, how they would want to show up in the world. But they can't do it because they feel constrained by the need to pay bills or to go to school for a certain conventional thing. How do you help those people if they want to do something more creative that society doesn't set up for them? Yeah, well, you'll you'll understand. Thank you for the story. I mean, it, it, it resonates deeply with your own childhood story. But what I want to say about, about the question is that, of course, we can agree that not one size fits all. Uh, we can agree that every individual story and circumstance has details that we would need to know in order to speak meaningfully to that individual in order to accompany that individual on his or her journey. And it is a journey. It's not something that you accomplish overnight. It's something that you keep working on your whole life. I reject the idea that in any given kind of work, it's impossible to show up with any part of your identity and integrity and honor yourself in at least some ways or some way. Honor your truth, honor your identity. If you interface with the public in any shape, form, or fashion, you have a chance to manifest qualities in yourself that serve others well. I'll tell you a quick story because I experienced it again last night. I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and we have a couple of wonderful Thai restaurants here, and my wife and I love Thai food. We go back to the same restaurant every time because there is there a really amazing woman, probably about 60 years old, Thai, part of the extended family that owns this restaurant, who absolutely loves people. And while she's doing a job that I I would find very demanding, very challenging, and probably not fulfilling, which is taking people's orders and serving food to people. I did that for a little while, but for me, it wasn't a life path. She's found the perfect job in which to express her love and passion for people. And there isn't a person in this town who goes to that restaurant who doesn't feel like I do, that she she illumines, lightens my life, warms my life every time I have a good nourishing meal of pad thai or whatever it may be. She's expressing a truth about herself, part of her true self, which is deeply engaging and in service of others. She doesn't do it for that reason. She doesn't do it to get big tips. She does it because she's manifesting an inner an inner truth. Now, if you turn towards situations where you're taking a big, big risk. Um, I still don't believe that there's never a workaround, but it takes time to figure these workarounds out. It takes time to find a, a way to negotiate the reality of a situation and your own identity and integrity to weave them together. And sometimes you can't find it and you you need to leave or you need to suck it up, keep going and find some other way to lean on situations that you find unacceptable or to express your own reason for living. And people do that. But let me tell a quick story about high risk. We're very aware these days of the important role that medical professionals play in our lives, right? I've done a lot of work with physicians over the years and the pressures on a physician to cut corners in our healthcare systems are incredible. So many patients who come in really need 30 or 40 minutes of attention, but the system grinds to a halt if they give them, if they give them more than seven or eight minutes. And a lot of us as patients know that, uh, and we suffer from it sometimes tragic ways. I've done a lot of retreat work <clears throat> with physicians, one of whom said to the group, the gathered group once, the healthcare system I'm, I'm working in has me right on the edge of violating my Hippocratic oath two or three times a week. Hippocratic oath being that to do no harm. So he's saying I'm right on the edge of harming people two or three times a week. Through a series of the story here, I won't tell it right now, but through a series of happenings at that retreat, creative engagements with himself, his own truth, and other people, he was able to go back to the healthcare system in which he worked, gather some other physicians, realizing I'm not alone with this concern. I've just come from a retreat where 25 physicians told me they have the same deal, and it grinds on them. He gathered some physicians at his institution. They planned and plotted assessed the politics of the situation, and after a couple months, were able to go to the administration and successfully propose a 
critical reform, which was the creation of a penalty-free zone for reporting medical errors. Medical errors being the thing that leads to hospitalization itself being sometimes the sixth, seventh, eighth cause of death, certainly in this country. I don't know about Canada. But the reason it's such a such a problematic thing is that when a medical error is made, knowing they're going to get penalized, people shut up about it, and other physicians who've seen it happen and know about it have their back. They engage in cover-up, which obviously is a degenerative process in the whole system. And so in this, by creating this penalty-free zone for the reporting of medical errors, an understandable medical error, not one you make because you're drunk or you want to get out on the golf course quickly, but an understandable medical error gets put into a data system so that systemic reforms can be made to keep that from happening again. If you're going to do this, you have to double check. You're going to do this. Here's Here are the protocols which must be followed precisely and charted as you follow them. There's all kinds of ways to do this. But all of that requires a next level of thinking. And I sometimes talk about this, at least in professional life. And this wouldn't maybe apply to every job, but it applies to a lot of jobs. When we train people to do these jobs, we should be also training them to think and act like community organizers within that organization. That's what those physicians did. They didn't learn to make those moves in medical school, those organizational moves. They were thinking and acting like community organizers, and they had impact. They helped probably save some lives. Which is huge impact. Leadership without a title sort of sentiment, I think, is really valuable. The reason I, I had asked that question about the fact that I am confident that many people believe that they should be showing up truly as themselves and that they often know is because I often will uh, reference a case study. So I'll bring up, you know, youth that I worked with at an addiction center. And I always use a real person, no real names, but I say, you know, such and such, 17 years old, recovering from addiction or teen parenting, a couple of kids or spent some time in custody. And I was kind of thinking of that case study type question for this episode and thinking of some of the work that you did, I really realized that much like you said, it, it's always an individual answer and you don't know the youth that I'm referencing. So that can be very difficult relatively quickly. However, I also realized that there is a general sense that it is the same problem for a lot of people. So I'll give you two quick examples of what I often see after, let's say, a kid spends a few years in prison and gets out. They almost always go one of two ways. They'll end up being able to go get work, much like maybe the, the person at a restaurant being a host and you might show up and they'd be lovely. But the whole time they're struggling knowing like I could be doing my poetry, I could be doing my music or my painting. The other version that I often see is they hardly even have the ability to get out of bed because once they're out of custody, they end up just not really wanting to show up in the world uh, at all, to be honest. Depression and anxiety are really the big struggles they face. So to summarize, there's, there's often those two people, the one who is at the restaurant, but also kind of wants to be pulled somewhere else or the person who can't even get out of bed because they want to go do that thing, but they don't know how to go do that thing. What are, are any thoughts that come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I th those are clearly important, poignant examples because there's a lot of people in, in those situations uh, in this country, certainly because of our uh, incredibly unjust incarceration demographics and rates, a lot of people in that situation. And as you know, I from reading some of my stuff, I can deeply empathize with the younger and older people who are sunk into deep clinical depression. I've been there three times in my life, twice in my 40s and once in my 60s, perhaps because I was out on the edge taking risks with my life that seemed so scary that I needed to hide out for a while. And those three descents into depression were six, eight, nine, ten months each, uh, during which time I had to be on medication to just keep from, frankly, taking my own life. Because every day it was a struggle to, to say, yeah, I do. I want to live another day. For me, the world was full of knives. That was the way I imaged it. I couldn't go out. I couldn't be with people. I lived in a darkened room for all those many months until slowly, slowly I began to emerge. And fortunately, I had a support system with my wife and others in 
who were in my environment, and not all of the people you're talking about do. The, the best thing, the best way I can answer is not to try to put myself in the shoes of such a young person uh, with those life circumstances. I've never been there. I'm not going there. Um, I just have a certain degree of overlap, I guess, with especially the, the kid in depression. And, and also, you know, the struggle to make a living while wanting basically to do something else to make a living. I mean, I did do my time in organizational jobs when everything in me said, right, 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 and try to make your living that way. But it, it took me a decade to get there. Actually, I guess probably closer to 15 or 20 years to get there, during which time I had to sort of sit on my primary passion. So I'm not one of these people who will just flip off, you know, find what you love and it will pay for itself. It doesn't work that way. There are often, you know, those kinds of dues to be paid and a lot of hard work to be put in. I think, though, that ultimately the response to the kinds of situations you just described for someone like me is to say, if you have any sort of power in this society, find ways to use it in beha on behalf of the folks of the sort that you just described, because they deserve a chance. They deserve a second chance, a third chance, whatever it may be. And the country is not structured to give them that chance. I can give you a good example of what a responsible adult I know did in this regard. It so happens that he was the corporate counsel, the lead attorney for the city of New York. As part of his supervisory role of uh, over a staff of 1,200 lawyers, he worked for a number of years to gather all of the lawyers in, in, on his corporate staff who work with juvenile offenders. And when I asked him what his goal was in this series of sessions that he was having with the folks who work in the juvenile justice system, he said, it's very simple. I'm trying to turn us away, and I'm having some success at this, to turn us away from the question that the attorney or the representative of the system asks the young people or the young person who comes before them, trying to turn us away from the question, what did you do, to the question, what happened to you? And he said, you know, this gets complicated because of all the details of the kind of criminality or alleged criminality that we deal with. The circumstances of arrests, some of them just, some of them very unjust. The circumstances of pretrial imprisonment, some of them just, some of them very unjust. The long waits, all of them unjust because we've loaded the system. He said, I don't want my people asking the punitive question anymore, the judgmental question, the indicting question. I want them asking the compassionate question, the autobiographical question, the question that would lead us to understand and prescribe the right remedies, which are often not imprisonment or severe punishment. What happened to you? How can we help mitigate it? How can we structure a system in which that kind of thing happens less and less frequently over time? He said, I just want them to have their eyes on the right thing, on the true thing, on the good thing. And I think that would, if you push that to its ultimate logic, it would serve these young people well. Reminds me and, and draws parallel to a recent interview I did with uh, Sister Helen Prejean, who the movie uh, Dead Man Walking was was after. And uh, it was neat because she spoke to, over the course of her career, how her mindset went from really, that was her strength, right? Obviously being compassionate for the person being imprisoned, and in her case, put on death row, to having compassion for the victims and then finding a healthy balance between the two and really an interesting parallel as to how similar those two lives are. And that's something that I have found really interesting. And I'll, I'll get people saying to me that I'm a, a victim blamer or that I'm pro perpetrator or all these different things in between because they don't really understand. I'm just trying to illuminate the fact that people are, let's call it 99.9% .9 similar. And then that act happened and you have victim and criminal to put it bluntly so that's really interesting i know at the sake of making sure we don't take too long um i really wanted to ask you something else and that's something that ties closely to your work you did just bring it up as your passion right 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 if you were to give somebody who's interested in writing specifically tips on either the art of storytelling or just the pragmatic how do you become an author in today's day and age yeah, it's a great question. I love it. Um, and I love it's something I love to talk about. And knowing that we're coming to the end of our time, I'll try to be brief. But 
really, uh, Justin, when you talk to an old man, you don't get brevity, right? <laughs> it's okay. It's worth it. <laughs> my my best advice is to be born baffled, which I was. I was born baffled. And I really think that uh, I came into the world in the city of Chicago in uh, February, a very cold February 28th, 1939. I came into the world just they slapped some air into me and held me up by my feet, you know, and I looked around and just said, wait, what? You know, it's like, what is all this? I don't, it's a confusing, complicated world. I don't understand. I'm born baffled. And I've carried that quality with me all my life. And so in my case, writing came partly out of a love of language and, and being aware of all the amazing things that language can do for better or for worse. But it also came out of a deep desire to keep peeling layers of bafflement off of what I didn't understand. And as I grew older, the range and depth of things I didn't understand grew too. And so every one of my books has been about what baffles me. And by the time I finish a book, which takes me five, six years on average, it's not that I haven't answered my questions. I've Instead, I've peeled off enough layers to get to the next level of questions. I, I now know more about the question behind the question or the answer behind the answer. So it's this continual, <clears throat> continual unfolding. And <clears throat> to put it in language that other people have used, I believe that in order to write or teach well, you have to trust your not knowing. You have to trust your not knowing. One of the reasons I could not be an academic writer is that in the academy, there's this emphasis on building on other people's knowledge, building on certainty, you know, building on the answers to emerge with the next generation of answers. Uh, it's a kind of additive process that way. For me, it's more like spiraling downward digging deeper, coming upon new mysteries to be walked around, appreciated, and problems to be solved or at least untangled a bit. So many writing workshops will say to newbies who aspire to write, begin with what you know. And I'd flip that over. Um, I mean, I, I shouldn't. I don't mean to be absolutist about this. I get the importance of writing about what you know. But I'd flip it over just for thought purposes, thought experiment purposes, and say, write about what you don't know. What is it in the world or in yourself or in your interactions with the world that baffles you, that intrigues you, but also confuses you? And write about that. And write not just from the answers you can find in the library, but at that point, write about your own experience. And, and trust everything. My wife likes to say, she says, I, she's my first line editor, incidentally, for which I'm very grateful because she's very good at it. But she, she likes to say, when you're writing at your best, Parker, you are always writing yourself into a corner. And I have no idea how you're going to get out. So I turn the page wondering, how's he going to get out of this one? I think he's got himself trapped this time and somehow you find a way out. It's that kind of writing that intrigues me. It's risky, it's risk-taking writing. And it's all about following an instinct and following a lead, you know, sort of like a good hunting dog, catching the scent along the trail that no one else can pick up and finding your way to some kind of denouement, some kind of con conclusion, some kind of end point. So the quick form of the writing workshop is write about what you don't know. What about you want to give it a try? So could self-publish, you know, you have publishers and there's like so many more options than there used to be, let's say. If somebody were, as you put it, newbies, they've done the writing workshop and they're going to go get started. What do you suggest they do in the in the practical sense of having an editor, not having an editor, et cetera? Well, I've, you know, all my writing career, I've never had an agent or an attorney. I just wanted to be in the world as myself, as a, as a writer. I didn't want a phalanx of institutional folk between me and my readers. And so, you know, I've always answered my own phone. I answer my own email. I don't have a staff, et cetera, et cetera. What I would suggest these days, of course, is, is something that actually the people you are talking about know better than I, which is use the, the many advantages of the internet 
and explore the best possible platforms where you can get your writing out quickly when it's ready, when it's ripe, when it's when it's polished as best you can, or you know, in experimental form where you're asking for interaction with readers. Folks might be interested to know that having done 10 books, I, I think I'm finished writing books. That's a marathon for me. I don't know that I have five or six more years to write a new book, but I run a very active Facebook author page that I use to share my short form writing, which feels just right. I'll often run commentary on a poem that grips me. Poetry is, is a big part of my life, poetry appreciation, and to some extent writing it. That page now has, I don't know, somewhere between 115,000 and 120,000 followers. So I know there's a quote market out there, but I, at this stage in my career, I don't need to sell it to anybody. I just am glad to offer it up. And I love the interaction with the audience. When you get a couple thousand people saying, I like this, and then a couple hundred people chiming in with comments that expand your own thinking, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for anybody at any age. I do suggest, and I know this this is, again, kind of countercultural when we're talking about people who might want to make their living as writers. I do suggest that you do not try to get compensation for everything you do. Give it away because in my experience, what you give away comes back to you in very concrete, practical forms. And I can illustrate that quickly. First 10 years of my writing, I just gave stuff away to newsletters, journals, magazines, you know, any place that was willing to take it. After a little bit, maybe a year or two, a certain small group of people started to identify me as someone with ideas, and they invited me to come and give a talk at their college or at their foundation or at their school or church. And I learned that that was a way to pick up small honoraria giving talks, even though I had given the writing away for free. I never asked a magazine for money. I just felt that getting it out there was more important than at that point than getting paid for it. And eventually, the writing itself became more lucrative. But during the course of my active life, let's say up until about 10 years ago, I never made enough money off of book sales to provide my full living, my living money, as it were came from the talks and the workshops and the retreats and the lectures and so forth that I gave, which involved flying around the country, not my favorite mode of living, but you got you, you got to do what you got to do. I'm glad that I don't have to do it anymore the way I did back then. So I think, again, this countercultural principle of give it away, trusting that it will come back to you in, in surprising, unpredictable forms. It, it happens that my dad, who was a very, very good man, um, who grew up in a blue-collar family in Iowa and came to Chicago during the Depression, became a very successful businessman in Chicago, for whom I had huge respect because of the deep humanity with which he did ran his business. He was known for that in the Chicago area. He was a deep believer in giving it away, which is quite contrary to most people's image of a successful businessman. But he felt deeply that this world had given him a chance to pursue his dreams, and he wanted to give that chance to other people. And a lot of those people didn't have money to buy what he had. So he was constantly taking in mentees and hiring people for jobs they weren't qualified for, et cetera, et cetera, out of his deep belief that the money wasn't what mattered. It was the people, and it was the relationships that you establish in the course of a lifetime. So give it away. That's another contrary notion for the would-be writer. I love that. I think that that's one thing that excites me so much about podcasting and YouTube and blogging and these these different formats in which we can do that. Uh, in the interest of rapping, I feel like you mentioned so many wise things in each of your responses that this first question may be, I'm sure something will come to mind, but point is I always ask people the same three uh, rapid fire type questions, you know, to, to wrap the episodes. Um, and so the first one is if you were to leave uh, one piece of advice for the next generation, what would that be? I think it would be try to figure out what it is that you can't not do. And if you have a clear and compelling answer to that, do it, even though you can hardly explain it to yourself, let alone anyone else. The question, what do I want to do, I think is kind of a mushy question. 
and it can we can be misled in any ways. But is there anything in that list of things you'd really want to do or would like to do that you can't not do? The, and I, I recommend that only because that question shaped my journey. Um, I was not wild crazy when I was young about taking all the risks that I took by following a very unconventional vocational path. And I guess the first thing I would say to that biz school audience that you started us out with would be, uh, think carefully about whether you follow my path, because it might just take you into the, into the deep, dark woods. Uh, I was fearful of that when I was young. Um, so maybe it ain't for you. But I just kept feeling I can't not do this thing I have in mind, this kind of exploration, what Gandhi called my experiments with truth. That was the title of his autobiography, and I've always loved that phrase. So what is it you can't not do? And the reason you can't not do it is your sense that if I don't pursue this on some level and in some way, I will pay a price with my soul. I will pay a price with my identity and integrity. So that's that's a question I think that people could ask themselves. Love it. I feel like we could talk about that for an hour alone. But it, like I said, it's wrap up rapid fire questions. So I'll ask the second one. And that is um, something that you yourself are still learning today or that you would still like to learn that may surprise people. The, the clear answer for me, Justin, is um, I'm learning how to get old and I'm working on learning how to die. I think you'll understand, given your background, that's not a morbid question for me. That's a life-giving question. Death is part of life. I've known that since my early 20s. And to live fully and to live well, you have to learn how to die as well as how to live. So it's a creative, life-giving question for me. And that's a deep, but um, I can't think of more important thing to be learning. Um, I'm sure people can go to your author's page or different posts you make to to continue to learn some of what you learn and continue to teach in that area. And I'm sure it would help every single one of us. If you were to ask me a question that you feel gives a little more clarity around the work that I'm trying to do or anything that came to mind. I'll just say I've loved the conversation and I'm so glad uh, you reached out to me and that we had a chance to connect this way. Um, I think the question that would most intrigue me uh, right now is what brought you into the work you do, especially with folks, incarcerated folks, recently released folks, uh, all of those concerns around what what one writer I, whom I love, Howard Thurman, called the disenfranchised. I respect that vocation very much. What brought you into it? Yeah, that's a good word. And I feel like this would be my six years of writing my first book if I were to be able to summarize it. Uh, which always makes these questions challenging, but awesome at the same time. I'm sure you felt that way throughout our chat. So brevity, that's what we asked for, right? I think for one, it was my own appreciation and understanding and struggles with things like mental health, anxiety, depression at those same years for them. For me, it was a lot younger, the early teen years and understanding what it was like to face those battles and how if I didn't have the upbringing privilege like you, like we talked about earlier that i have and for whatever reason a brain that was able to play the game of school to get by and then play the game of work i'm sure i would be almost just the same as anyone else and so i had always had an appreciation for the fact that i'm not special or anything and that these challenges of mental health don't discriminate really but it's the uh, way in which you have tools to fight them that can really help a lot. And so for me, it started with really the mental health, the psychology, psychiatry kind of interests. And then in the practical sense of, you know, becoming a high school teacher and finding that when I was in regular high schools, I just couldn't do it because I felt almost like I was teaching just to babysit in the sense of like, in short, just having to fill the time from 8 a.m. till 2 p.m. because that's just what the system makes us do. It doesn't matter if the kid needs it or not this is the system and this is where you're going to be. So I needed to find another version of that. Interestingly enough, and maybe we can talk again in the future offline or just as friends, but I have found since that even this next system has its own constraints that make it hard to really educate. And that's hence the podcast. Well, that's, that's a, that helps me understand the, the depth and really the quiet passion with which you go about this, for which I have great respect and which really drew me in 
Thank you again so much. Well, thank you. And I do have one last question, and that's where uh, people could find you online if they wanted to support your work. Well, thanks. Um, so again, just for your own uh, enjoyment, I hope, my Facebook author page is under the name Parker J. J. Period Palmer. And then the website of the Center for Courage and Renewal, www.couragerenewal.org. And then I have a wonderful, what do you call it, side hustle, which makes no money, with a marvelous singer-songwriter named Carrie Newcomer, who's a longtime friend of mine for the last 20 years. She has a lot of beautiful music on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and elsewhere. She and I run a project called The Growing Edge, and you'll see a whole lot of stuff there, including Carrie's music, my writing. Uh, we have a monthly podcast as well. It's been a real joy for me to collaborate with a singer-songwriter who has a completely different skill set than I do and works in a different medium. I even asked, uh, got her help in writing a song, and she produced it. It's on YouTube. It's called The Music Will Play On, and it's actually about the journey to the end of life. The Music Will Play On on YouTube if you want to hear my, my standalone musical effort in the world. That's amazing. That speaks to the idea of lifelong learning and growth mindset no matter what. And I did see a caption that you had created that song, but I haven't heard the actual song. So I look forward to going and checking it out. This conversation has been amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy person and I just can't say thank you enough. Thank you, Justin, for your work. I really appreciate it and you. May it flourish and you as well. Thank you. And uh, re reach out anytime if you need anything. Okay, take care. Get with your family. Enjoy the kids. They'll be growing up before you know it. That's just it. Like in a flash. Thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll chat soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. JKL community, thank you so much for being here. I really hope these are helping you. It can be hard to get the stories to spread, so please do share with others. If you have a request for a guest too, that would be amazing. Thank you to our current guest, Parker, such a kind, generous, and wise leader. It was an honor to do this interview. It's our goal to have this show in every school in the world, so please subscribe, leave reviews, but most importantly, pass it on to someone who could learn from the show. Until the next episode, all the best, and remember, just keep learning.